please take your copy of God's Word and turn into John 14. One of the things that they teach you in seminary that there's not very many of them that you have to unlearn, but one of the ones that I had to unlearn was how to find a text to preach. So the Bible is a big book. I'm sure you've all realized this by now. There's a lot of text to preach. And one of the ways that they tell us is that you just start in one spot and you just keep going until you finish the book. And that's, that's certainly fine and good. But I read our brother Spurgeon talking to his students about how to find a text to preach. And I like what he has to say a little more than I liked what my professors had to say. And that is, you pray to God and you ask him, what should I preach? And so that's how we came to this, this passage this morning. As I said a prayer like this, I said, Father, I don't know what to preach. I want to preach on the mercy of God. I think the people of a cornerstone would, would love to hear about your mercy. But I'm not finding many passages that draw me in to the mercy of God. And so unless you do that, I'm going to continue down to the next section in, in John 14. And come Tuesday morning, uh, I didn't have any passages come to my mind. God didn't bring any passages to my mind. So we find ourselves at John chapter 14. We're going to do verses 7 through 14 today. This is the consecutive preaching of this chapter. That's why I bring all of this up uh, anyway. And it deals with our context from last time I preached. And that is Jesus in a room full of very discouraged, very grief-stricken disciples. So let us pray and then we'll commence. We thank you, Father, for the true sense of your holiness, which you have given to us this morning, and of your grace and your mercy in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you glorified yourself through the singing of praise to you and has impressed upon our hearts that you are worthy to be praised. We thank you for the word read this morning that confronts us with the most foundational of truths that you are not like any of us and that the church is not our club but your institution and that you have the prerogative and more than this, the authority to order it any way you choose. And we do ask you, Lord God, that you would forgive us if we have a problem with that. We thank you, Father, for this true sense of your holiness and of your presence as your gathered people. And now, we come to the preaching of the Word of God, where Jesus is to be herald before your people. 
and into a lost and dying world. And having studied this passage all week and knowing my own human failings, I know that there is a way for me to preach this word that may be theologically accurate and yet give you none of the glory you deserve. And so I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit here among us, for the glory of Christ Jesus and the glory of yourself, Father, that you would not allow that to happen. And so we ask, give words and give them power. And only you can do this. For it's in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned before, last time I was preaching, we, we, we were looking at John chapter 14, and we were looking at verses 1 through 5. And we set the context of all of this. And the context was this. Jesus in the upper room telling his disciples that he was going to the Father, that he was going away from them, that he was leaving them, and he was going back to the Father. And we remarked that in verse uh, 1, where he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. We remarked that the room must have been, having heard this, the room must have been grief-stricken. The body language on the disciples could not hide the fact that they were troubled-hearted. But more than this, Jesus, as being the God-man, had the ability to, to cut through all of the body language and know what was going on in the inner man, the turmoil which they must have been feeling. And so when, when Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, it's because their hearts were troubled. And he sought to give them comfort. They were faced with the prospect of Jesus leaving them, and so it's no wonder that the, the disciples were troubled-hearted. He was going away. One was going to deny him. Another was going to betray him. It seems to be stacking up. Does it, is it going to get any better? You're going away? Wait, there's more. One of you is going to betray me. Come on, can there be a little bit of light? No, one's going to deny you. It looks so bleak to them in that moment. It looks so hopeless. But then the light comes and Jesus says, I'm going away. Do not be troubled because I go to my father to prepare a place for you in his house. Christ sought to comfort them with the truth. He goes not to leave them, but to prepare them a place within the father's house. He goes not for their ruin, but for their advantage. It must have seemed so bleak to them, so black, so depressing, until Christ Jesus himself said that he goes to win them a blessing, to win them eternal life. He goes that they might dwell with God the Father in heaven. John 1 tells us that the Word became flesh and that he dwelt among them. The Word, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among them. But now, 
he goes, so that man may dwell with God. It's the most amazing, most remarkable thing, and it is the thing, one of the many things, that separates Christianity from all of the false religions of this world. Every other religion says you can dwell with God, you can be with God, you can even become God in some instances. If you do all of these things, Christianity says Christ did this thing, you may now dwell with God. And so that was the last sermon. This week we look at the fact that Jesus provides one more word of assurance to assure them of their relief, that he and the Father are one. It's not only that Jesus will bring them to the Father, but more than this, Jesus shows them the Father even now in verses 7 through 11. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Jesus Christ here declares in very plain language that not only will he bring them to the Father, but they can be assured of this because he and the Father are one, that there is this oneness which Jesus Christ has with the Father that will assure them of this, this great promise. Those who know Jesus know the Father. Those who have seen Jesus have seen the Father. How can they then have any certainty and assurance of the promises which Jesus is saying? How will they know that the master of the house will let them in to the household? Because they are so unified, they are share such a oneness with one another, that it is as if the master of the house is making that promise to them. With his authority, he says, you will have a place with God in heaven. This oneness of Jesus with the Father will be demonstrated in the continued work of his church. That's verse 12. But more than this, the prayers of his people will proclaim his oneness with the Father and that's verses 13 through 14. You see this great, there's, there's, there's so much that bleeds into to each other in, in theology. And when we study theology, we want everything in these nice little boxes. You know, because more or less that's how we learn. You know, we have these little categories and we put ideas in these categories. But when you get to theology, especially when you get to Christology, the theology or the science of who Christ is, it all kind of bleeds together. There is this interconnection 
that you can maybe distinguish, but you can never separate. And so it is. The fact that Christ Jesus and the Father are one in nature, that they share this oneness with one another, this great unity, that when Christ Jesus makes a promise about the Father's house, it's because of this great unity that they have that you can have any certainty that it's true. And that this oneness with Christ not only has implications for the life that is to come in heaven, but it also has implications for the life that we now live on earth, mainly through the work of the church and the prayers of his people. So we must, it is crucial, it is crucially important, church, and you children who sit under the preaching of God's word week after week with us, it's crucial that you recognize the unity and oneness of Jesus Christ with God the Father. It's absolutely crucial. You must first look to Jesus to see his oneness with God the Father, and that's verses 7 through 11. We just read them. If you are to see God the Father, you must look in the right place. You must look to Jesus Christ. What does, uh, what does he say here? He says, if you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And then Philip the disciple has this, this really bizarre kind of thing that he says. And he says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? The Lord Jesus Christ is very plain. He's very direct. If you have known me, you have known the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then Philip, as is typical of the disciples uh, before the giving of the Holy Spirit, it's kind of slow on the uptake. It's kind of dull. He doesn't quite get it. And I'm so very thankful that our Lord doesn't have to suffer with that kind of disciple anymore. Yeah, right. And he says, well, show us the Father then. And our Lord Jesus Christ answers him very, very kindly and very patiently. Philip, how long have I been with you and you have not known this? How can you say, show us the Father? I just said that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you have known me, you have known the Father. But yet Philip doesn't understand. And he asked God to sh and he asked Jesus Christ to show him. Show me the Father. G uh, Philip is asking for what is known as a theophany. He wants to see a picture. He wants to see God the Father manifested in time and space. He's asking for a burning bush. He's asking for the angel of the Lord to, the, to appear. He's asking for the Son of God or the Son of Man to appear in a burning furnace. He's asking for all of the things that he'd learned from his youth, from the Old Testament, that when God would manifest himself before his people. He's asking for nothing more than God to be shown to them. 
And there's this great irony. If our Lord Jesus Christ could do it without sinning, it would almost be like if he would have went, Ta-da! I'm here. You know, when I was a kid, I was like Philip. I was very young. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. But my grandmother, she was a Christian, very devout Lutheran, one of the good ones, Missouri Synod. And she had in her home for us this picture Bible. It was an old thing. I'm sure it was a terrible telling of God's word. But it got me interested in the things of God. And I would read it, and I'd flip through it, and I'd, you know, I'd have these questions. And I remember as a very young child, I was probably five or six, laying in my bed thinking about what all these pictures that I saw in this picture Bible, and the story about Job, and the sons of God coming before God on his throne, and the devil, and all of this type of stuff. And I said, you know... God would just just show himself to me. Then I, I would believe it would be enough. It would be sufficient for me. If he would just give me a theophany. And so I said to myself, you know what, God? I will believe in you if you turn the lights on and off. Just turn them on. So it was my bedtime. The lights were off. God, you just flip that light switch and flip it back. And I'll believe in you. If you give me this miracle or that miracle, or if you show yourself to me in this way or that way. Now, for a child, flipping the light switch might have been what we asked for. But as adults, you find yourself asking for a similar type of thing. If you do this thing or if you do that thing, well, then I will believe in you. If you show yourself in this way or that way, if you make it all go away and everything is perfect in my life, then I will believe in you. You give me that girl as my wife, or you give me that boy as my husband. If you give me this job or that job, then I will believe in you. If you'll heal me of this illness or that illness, well, then I'll believe in you. Show me, Father. Show me the Father, and I, it will be enough for me. Oh, church of God, do you want to see God the Father? Do you want to see Him? Don't look to these parlor tricks that we try to put him through of flipping on light switches, of healing diseases. If you really want to see God the Father, if you really want to see him, if you want to know who he is and what he looks like, look in the right place. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. This begs the question. Perhaps you have never seen God the Father in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ because you don't know Jesus Christ. We must make ourselves readers of God's word, brothers and sisters. A, a, a great man of God. He's still alive today. One of the few faithful men of God who are, happens to be a celebrity pastor. He has his fan club. Terrible thing to be a pastor and have a fan, fan club. He remarks 
and I parrot his words, I echo them back to you, that today's church, the biggest problem with American evangelicalism today, with the modern Christian church, is that we have a large group of people who are emphatic, who are so overcome with emotions towards our Lord Jesus Christ, and they don't even know who he is. They're in love with a Savior whom they don't even know. They're like Philip. Show us a sign, and it's enough for us. There has been no greater sign ever given. There has been no greater appearing of the Father among men than the person of the Son of God and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look in the right place, dear people. So see Christ's oneness with God the Father in his nature, verses 9 through 10. 9 through 10. Have I been so long with you, and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. When we think about what we call rational creatures, when we think about human beings and we think about God, what we need to consider is that there are two parts of them. There is what we can say their nature, their being, their essence. And then we can talk about their person. And so, me and my wife are both humans. She has her doubts some days about me, but I never have my doubts about her that she's a human being. We have that in common, that we're both humans. That's our being, our essence. We're humans. But she's a very different human, praise God, than I am. She is a human woman, and I am a human man. And that distinction that we're making there isn't in being or essence. What we're, that distinction what we're making is in person. I am a man, she is a woman. Well, it's no different than when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the nature of God. He has the identity of man. And so, he shares in that nature, but not in that identity. They're the same, yet distinct. The oneness that Christ has with the Father is one of being. It goes beyond that of what we would say agency. It's not that their oneness is, is the kind of oneness that maybe the Pharisees would have been familiar with. That would have been a oneness of... You have a master and you have a servant. And the servant does what the master says, and he does it on his authority. It's like when the children come, in, uh, come into the, the room full of other kids, and they say, Mom said stop that. Well, they better stop it. Not because their little brother or little sister said it, but because Mom said it. That would be of agency. 
This oneness that we're talking about is much greater than this. This is one of nature. It comes with the authority of God the Father because of that shared nature. There is this sharing of identity of being with Christ and the Father that goes beyond this master-servant relationship. And yet at the same time, they manage to be they manage to remain distinct from one another. That's verses 10. The, the son is in the father, the father is in the son. There's a distinctness, this distinct thing there that we can look at. But when he says, have I been so long with you and you have not come to know me, Philip? There he's taking upon himself this identity through his nature, through his being. It's more than just, I come and do the works of the Father, or the Father's doing his works through me. But it's so, it's, we're so one with one another that we are shared in our identity as our being of God. The oneness of their natures mean that we can see Christ's, we can see the Father's perfe perfections in his being. That's what that means for us. Is that when you look at Jesus Christ as he is revealed to you in the scriptures, you can actually pick up and see the perfections of God the Father. And I've been here long enough and I've belabored the point long enough of how important it is to know what the perfections of God are for you to know where, where this goes and what the practical application is. In the perfect compassion of Jesus, we see the benevolence of God. That's one of God's perfections, his goodness. Do you want to know, do you want to see God the Father's benevolence? Look to the perfect compassion of Jesus. In the sinless life of Jesus, we see the holiness and righteousness of God the Father. Would you like to know that God, what, what it looks like when God, the, with God's Father's perfection of holiness and righteousness? Look to Jesus Christ and see his perfections displayed. And even in Christ's humiliation, his coming as a man in the incarnation, his being mocked and tormented, his giving himself up to the cross, we see the justice, wrath, and love of God on display. These aren't just abstract categories that we, we, we write down in a list with a heading that says the perfections of God. They're very real, and we know they're real because we can look to Jesus Christ and know they're real. But if we are to see God the Father in Jesus, we must look upon his word with eyes of faith. Verse 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. If you are to see God the Father and Jesus Christ, you must look upon his words with eyes of faith. We come to the words of Christ not with, a, not with sentimentality. We come not to the words of Christ 
to boost our own psychology. We come not to the words to give us feels or for it to hit us in the feels. We come to the words of Christ with faith, believing. Believing that what he says carries the weight and authority of God the Father because they are one. We are looking to the words of Christ with faith, not only when we recognize that it's Christ speaking is the voice of God, but also when we order our lives around it. He says, believe, believe the words, look to faith with the words which I've spoke to you, the words which I speak not on my own initiative, but have been given to me to give to you through the, by the Father. Such practical questions are, are asked by some of the smallest of people. They say, how do I know that I believe? How do I know that I have faith in these words? Do you come to the words of Christ? Those words that are often written and read on our Bible. Do you come with them? And when you read them, do you recognize in them the voice of God? And having heard God's voice in those words of Christ, do you care enough to order your life around them? To do what he says to do and to not to do the things he says not to do. To love the way he says to love. To live the way he says to live. To speak the way he says to speak. There was an opportunity within our, our family, as a family, to repent. One of the Wednesday nights, our pastor led us and he said, Now we're going to look at Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy says to teach your kids the word of God. And then our pastor embarrassed me very greatly, and he says, Steve, tell us about your family worship. Well, I would if we did any. It's been a long time. And as I read those words, I was ashamed. Because I looked at those words in faith, and I said to myself, God has spoken, and I'm not obeying. Why do we obey Christ? Well, it's not because it's the most fashionable thing to do. It's probably in this world the least fashionable thing to do. Why do we obey the words of Christ and believe them? Well, it's not because things will just work out pragmatically for us. No, we obey the words of Christ because in them we see the voice, we hear the voice of God. We see God the Father in the words of Jesus Christ. If we will not trust his words with the things of this earth, we can hardly say that we'll trust them with the greater things of heaven. If you are to see God the Father and Jesus Christ, you must look upon his miracles with eyes of faith. He, he mentions two things. He says his words and he says his works. And what are the works which he does? Well, I think what he's referring to, what Christ is referring to here, are the miracles. All the miracles which Christ did. 
But we must expand our understanding of his miracles as not merely being signs of his power, but we must expand our understanding of his miracles as signposts which point us to his being one with the Father. We have to do, as D.A. Carson said, exegete or interpret his miracles. We can't just look at the miracles of Jesus Christ and say, well, it's just a display of God's supernatural power. It is that. But it's much more than that. There's a reason why he does the miracles that he does. And so when we doubt his miracles, when we do as the liberal theologians do and cast out and cast, deny all the miracles which he did, if we're like our former president Thomas Jefferson and take our Bibles and rip out all the supernatural and come up with our own Bible. We're doubting his miracles. We doubt his claim that he and the Father are one. Brothers and sisters, if he never healed the leper, if the man that came through his ceiling that day in Capernaum didn't get up from his pallet and walk, then he is unable to forgive you of your sins. If he never casted out the demons into the pigs from the man with legion, if the demons in the synagogue didn't cry out at his teaching and say, what business do we have with you, son of God? Then he is unable to renew your mind and your soul. Brothers and sisters, if he never caused the blind to see, then we're still blind ourselves. The world may tell you that Christ's miracles are just fables, that they're from a time where people believe that kind of fairy tale, that we know that these type of things can never happen that Christ had no miraculous power in himself at all. That it's cute that you want to believe them. And we understand that your Sunday school teacher taught these to you. But out here in the real world, we don't believe such foolishness. The world may tell you all of those things. They might try to have you cast out on all of them. But let faith tell you that his miracles are not only a mark of his supernatural power, but of his being one with God. There is so much at stake when we deny his miracles. Admire Jesus's oneness with the Father and his working through the church, verse 12. He moves on and he gives further consolation to his disciples. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. We should admire Jesus' oneness with the Father in the works that he does within his church. Now, in the context of this passage that we're reading today, he's talking to a private group. And we know that this group is made up of the 11 apostles, well, the disciples that would become the apostles. He's talking to a very particular group. He taught to large crowds and he gave wonderful discourses to them. We have the um, 
Beatitudes, for instance. But here, this is a much more intimate setting. There is a select group of people that are here. And so we shouldn't seek to interpret this promise which Christ gives as to every individual believer who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is talking directly to and in the company of his apostles. And so the promise is made to his apostles and his apostles alone. Now they were the church at that time. And they were, they were going to be able to do, according to Christ's word, great and marvelous works. In fact, greater works than what they have seen Christ do. But it was only to their apostles. And I would argue even from verse 7 where it says... Um, from now on or henceforth in verse 7, that all of this will, will transpire after the day of Pentecost. But suffice it to say, the apostles will be doing greater works than him. And it's not to, this verse is not to be interpreted in a devotional way as to every individual believer. Brother, sister, your shadow will not heal like Peter's did. Your handkerchief and your apron, ladies, they will not heal the sick as Paul's did. You will not raise the dead as the apostles did. Nor will you speak in a language that you do not know as the, the apostles did. These sign gifts were reserved for the apostles to confirm their unity with the unified Christ as well as that the gospel message which they proclaimed, in fact, came from heaven. So what do we do with that? You just bummed me out, Steve. You just said I'm not going to be doing signs and wonders. Well, there is in our faith, in the oneness of Christ with the Father, is strengthened when we understand that while Christ is not present, he is still working. That was to be the takeaway that they were supposed to get from this. Not how cool it's going to be when we're going to do miraculous works, but to, as a demonstration that because Christ and the Father are one, and because he goes back to the Father, Christ is still able and willing to continue his work through their ministry. He is still working as he's working today in us as the church with ever increasing success. The ministry of the apostles points to the oneness of Christ with the father, but more than this, the ministry of the church, the ministry of cornerstone fellowship strengthens our faith in the oneness of Christ with the father. Will miraculous signs and wonders we will never know. But the goal and the mission that those works had, we will, and will be carried on by us as the local church. Jesus proclaimed the gospel in Palestine. He never went any further. The apostles throughout the Mediterranean, we the church throughout the world. Is there the, ask our sister, is there a church in Mexico? 
ask our pastor, is there a church in South Africa? Ask our brother Jorge if South America has the gospel. Or what about Cuba? Ask the Wells family if there is a church there as well. Ask our brother Michael Amadi if Ireland has the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in it. What about the work in South England? The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is spreading, and it's spreading because of the ministry of the church, carrying it out throughout the world. And we'll have, until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, as promised in his word here, ever-increasing success. And those examples are all fine and good. When we consider that our Lord Jesus Christ commissioned a church of 12 and that the apostles added thousands in a day and that today throughout the world, the church, the local church, the visible church are roughly 800 million throughout the world. We might not know the works, we might not know the signs, but we will know the work. Which brings us home in Newburgh. Will we take this verse and will we look upon it with belief that because Jesus Christ and the Father are one, that we will have ever increasing success when we carry out the gospel? Now, I'll be the first one to admit that the momentum that we were starting to build as a church was came to a violent squashing because of COVID. But this verse is still in our Bibles and we will know ever increasing success because we know God the Father in our Lord Jesus Christ. Will we believe church? We finally come to the verse 13, the last verse in our section of scripture here that we'll cover today. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Confess Jesus' oneness with the father by praying in his name. This is what he would have us to do. That when we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, what we actually are doing is confessing Jesus's name, or Jesus's oneness with the Father. Praying in the name of Christ implies his unique oneness with God, the Father. Now for us, we kind of just stick, our, at the end of our prayers, we kind of just stick in Jesus' name. And if I have to admit, I, I don't think many of us really have thought why we do that other than he says pray in my name but what he's asking for is not for us to offer a prayer and then stick that phrase at the end of it what he's asking for is for us to confess his oneness with the father what he's asking for is our prayers to be conformed to his being and his mission 
And we're so used to that. We're so used to just praying and then in the name of Jesus, or it's in the name of Christ we pray. But put yourself in the shoes of those 11 men who were sitting there. How, frankly, revolutionary it was. Because they've always prayed to God the Father. They've always offered up prayers to God the Father. But in Deuteronomy 18 and Isaiah 8, they are instructed not to consult other spirits, not to pray to them. It's strictly prohibited. You only pray to God the Father. You only pray to God. Now Jesus is saying, now pray in my name. And I'll do, I'll make sure that those prayers are answered. Jesus himself gives us an example of prayer. He gives us the pattern prayer in Matthew 8. I'm sorry, Matthew 6. We are instructed to pray to God. Pray this way. Our God who is in heaven, holy be your name or hallowed be your name. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 says to pray without ceasing to God, God the Father. And now here Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray in my name and I will answer them. Again, that unity, that oneness that he has with the Father, while we might be able to distinguish, we can never separate it. It's like any other unity that exists in this world, or even, quite frankly, in heaven. Objectively, praying in the name of Christ is categorized by the belief in the essence or being of Christ as the God-man. When we say in Jesus' name, what we are saying, what we are confessing, is that unity that Jesus has with God the Father. And subjectively, what we're saying is, is that this prayer has the same character, the same personality, the same end goal or end mission as that of, of Christ. We're not simply taking in Jesus' name and sticking it at the end of our prayers, but we are confessing Christ's oneness with the Father, both in terms of his being one with God and his mission of drawing all men to himself. Praying in the name of Christ is praying prayers that mirror who Christ is and what he sought to accomplish. It's a very humbling thing when we think about that. How many of our prayers are, quite frankly, not really in the name of Christ. But we stick it at the end of our prayers. And so when we do pray, church, when we come together and pray, or as we pray as individuals to pray in the name of Christ, let us think about what we're going to say in terms of who Christ is and what he has come to accomplish. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we never pray to, for people who are sick anymore. Obviously, that's the will of God or Jesus. He wants people healed. He healed people. But it is to give us a reverent pause before we speak that when we pray, we do pray in the name of Christ. And with that, we have the hope and the sure promise 
that he will fulfill those prayers. So seek to declare the name of Christ in your prayers. Adore his nature and his person as the Son of God. Confess your genuine faith and his oneness with the Father. These are all good things to do in our prayers uh, and are just a small sample of what it means to pray in his name. Seek to conform your prayers or our prayers to the name of Christ. Pray for those things which are pleasing to Christ. Would you, would you like to know for certain that you're praying in the name of Christ? Well, pray for those things which you know Christ desires. We can have confidence. We are praying in the name of Christ if we do those two things. If we seek to declare the name of Christ in our prayers, and if we seek to perform, conform our prayers to the name of Christ. The oneness that Jesus has with the Father carries with it implications that are far-reaching. Far-reaching. Not only does it give us the assurance that he is able to get us to heaven, but it gives us the confidence and encouragement to confess the name of our Lord Jesus in our prayers and as we work in the spread of the gospel throughout Newburgh. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for revealing just a small piece of who you are. We thank you that we do not doubt who you are because we have been given to seeing you in Christ Jesus. We ask, Father, for a greater look. We thank you that you did not have to hide us behind the rock for us to behold your glory as you did Moses, but you have displayed it perfectly before us in the person of Jesus Christ. We long to see him face to face, and we thank you for his presence among us today as your uh, gathered people. And we ask, Father, that we would meditate, think about what it really means in our lives that you and the Father are one. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.